Well, first off, I just want to say that he is writing this, his audience, as we look at our sheets, is Jewish and Gentile believers. And the, the theme is, Jesus is the exalted Son of God. And the key words we look at are signs, know, believe, and life. But now we get to, why did he write this gospel? And a key verse is John 20, 31. And I'm actually going to read verses um, 30 and 31 from chapter 20. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John is writing this so you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah, and that he is the Son of God, very God, God in the flesh. And he's writing this so that you may have life in his name. And I don't think it's just talking about the, the quantity of life as far as eternal life, but it's talking about a quality of life. He says, you know, Jesus said that you may have abundant life believing in me. Um, I write these things, you may have your joy to the full and much peace in believing. So it's a quality of life. It's a quantity of life, eternal life, but also a quality of life, having life in his name. And, you know, the, the Gospel of John, many times when I'm witnessing, I refer a person who is seeking to the Gospel of John because the, jo the Gospel of John it's just a wonderful book to introduce people to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's also a book of uh, apologetics. Now, when I say apologetics, it's not apologizing for our faith, but it's being able to defend our faith, to give a reason for the hope that we have within. And then it's also um, it's faith building. I think we as believers, as we read the Gospel of John, we grow stronger in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and John, as he writes, he's almost like a good defense attorney here, just building the case for the Lord Jesus Christ. He brings forth a number of witnesses. Um, he shows the works and miracles that Jesus did. And he also includes statements that Jesus makes about himself and others make about him. Um, there was a book a number of years ago written, The Case for Christ. I don't know, by Les Strobel. I don't know if anyone ever read that. But here, you know, John is making uh, the case for Christ, that he is indeed the exalted Son of God. So going back, let's, we're going to look a lot at the um, first chapter, John chapter 1. Um, the first 18 verses really give us a foundation for the rest of the book and the Gospel of John. And I'm going to begin here by reading the, the first three verses. In the beginning was the word... And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now where it says in the beginning, what does that sound like? Genesis. Yeah, Genesis chapter 1. And this is talking about in the beginning, the creation of the world. And it says here in the beginning was the word. And we want to identify who is the word. Um, in Greek, the word is logos, meaning the divine expression, how um, the divine expresses uh, in language to his creation. Um, and it says, the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and it says here, the word was God. 
Well, if you jump down to verse 14, we see who the word is. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word is Jesus, and he is, he is God, very God. He's the one who is the creator of all that there is, as we see in verse 3. And as we look at um, verse um, 1, in the beginning was the word. We see that the past tense of the verb was. We don't know a whole lot about what happened before the creation of the world. We get a little bit of a glimpse of it in John 17, where Jesus is praying his great prayer. And he says to the Father, I desire that I may have the glory that I had with you before the world began. And uh, one author was describing it as being before the world began, before the angels were singing praises to God in heaven, before mankind was created, before there was darkness and sin and rebellion that entered into the world. This author says there was an awful silence, God existing alone in eternity past, alone, but enjoying perfect harmony, glory, and love. But there came a time when God created the world. And we think to ourselves, why did God create the world? Well, it says in scripture that all things have been created by him and through him and for him. And it says, God is in heaven and he does all that he pleases. And it pleased God to create the world. And, and not just to be an observer of what he created, but he wanted to manifest his glory um, to a people that he created, us who are created in his image, um, to the angels. He wanted to manifest his glory and show them who he is and the greatness of his glory. So he desires to manifest his glory. We see a glimpse of this. If you look in uh, John chapter 2, uh, verse 11, Jesus, when he had performed his uh, first miracle, um, turning the, uh, the water to wine, it says in verse 11, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So we, we see a glimpse here of him manifesting his glory. And then we see down in uh, chapter 1, um, verse 18, it says, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. God desires to communicate to us who he is so that we, in turn, can glorify his name. And uh, God is great. He does all things according to his purpose, the purpose of his counsel. So we look here. It says here that, um, and we think when Jesus, uh, there's a verse that comes to mind when I was doing this study. I was thinking of um, Galatians 4.4. 4 that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that they could receive adoption as sons. He came into this world, the Lord Jesus, to redeem a people unto himself that we could receive that adoption as his children and thereby you know, bring great glory to his name. Well, we look down into uh, verse 5, and it says here that, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
We see later on in the book of John that Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Why did God allow darkness to come into the world? You know, sometimes you talk to people and they say, well, if I had created the world, I would have done it differently. We wouldn't have all these problems and these suffering. Oh, really? God is perfect in wisdom and righteousness, and he does all things well. And he allowed darkness to come into this world. I, I sometimes think of an example of um, if you have a flashlight and you're shining in broad daylight, it doesn't seem like it's much. But if you take that flashlight and you shine it into a dark room, it's like, whoa, it, it lights the whole room, and the darkness cannot overcome that light. And as we think about God and his creation and, and creating the world and, and darkness has come into the world but has not overcome the light, um, God could never have had exhibited his attributes of mercy and grace and justice unless he had allowed darkness to enter into this world. And he, according to his good pleasure, wanted to manifest his glory in this way. It says, God is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And, uh, you know, like I said before, in allowing darkness to enter into the world, he can exhibit those attributes of his in a glorious and a powerful way. We see here, um, looking down further, we see the first witness. And who is the first witness that we see in um, verses 6? John the Baptist. Um, he's the first one who bears witness. He says, I'm not the light, but I came to bear witness about the light. And as we go down into verse 10, we see here, Jesus, he was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. What a, what a sad commentary on mankind that um, our hearts are so darkened and lost in sin, and we're so dead in our trespasses when we come into this world that the world did not acknowledge him, but his own people did not acknowledge him or receive him. Um, a sad commentary on mankind. But if you look into verse 12, whenever you see the word but or therefore, it makes a transition. And I'm so thankful that this word is here. It says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Well, what a glorious promise. We don't have to be lost in our sins and uh, we don't have to be in a rebellious state forever. To all who believed in him and received him, he gave that right to be called his children. And, you know, later on, we were looking, reading this week in uh, John chapter 3, and we see Nicodemus, you know, he comes before uh, Jesus, and he says to him, yep, no one can do what you're doing unless you're from God. Um, and Jesus responds in uh, a curious way probably to Nicodemus. He says, truly, truly. And when he says truly, truly, he's making an emphatic point. You must be born again. And then he goes on to say the necessity of faith and believing. And he used the example of um, Moses and the serpents in the desert. Remember the time when the, the Israelites were um, rebelling? They, they were complaining to Moses and complaining to God about you know, what they were going through. And God sent fiery serpents into the wilderness. 
and um, you know, as a punishment for what they were grumbling about, these serpents would bite the people, and the people, many of them, died from these poisonous bites. Well, Moses prayed for the people, and God said to Moses, build yourself a bronze serpent and lift it up in the wilderness, and whoever believes and looks on this bronze serpent will be healed. They had to do that. There was no other way to be healed of that sickness. They had to trust that that serpent was the only remedy that could uh, save them from death. So they would come and look at that bronze serpent. And uh, it said that that's an example of the Lord Jesus. He was lifted up to die for our sins on the cross and that all who believe in him, he gives eternal life. And so he's going to Nicodemus. You need to be born again. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, you can't trust in your own works. If we go down to verse 13, we go even further here. John says, you, those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Here, he's talking about being born again, like we just mentioned in John chapter 3. It says here, who were born not of blood. You know, in John chapter 3, he's saying to Nicodemus, just because you're a Jew doesn't mean that you're right with God. And then it says here, not of the will of the flesh. You can't do anything to save yourself. No amount of good works is going to be able to save yourself and make yourself right with God. And then not even the will of man. And a lot of times we will and desire to see other people come to Christ. But um, it's up to God. God is the one who brings new life. And um, Jesus was saying, you must be born again. And the interesting thing about the term born again, and I think Nicodemus realized this, that you have no, resp you have, um, no control over how you were born the first time. You have no control over where you were born, into what family you were born into, what geographic part of the world you were born into, what gifts and talents you would have. You have no control over that. that that's all from God. And he's saying, in the same way, to be born again, you have no control over that. You are totally helpless, Nicodemus, and yet you must be born again. He gives him the imperative, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's only possible when the Holy Spirit regenerates a person to realize their sin, realize their hopeless existence outside of God and faith in Jesus Christ, and knowing that Jesus died for them and was raised a third day for their justification. There's no other way, Nicodemus. You must believe that I am he, and you must be born again. And we see here, um, we read earlier, the word became flesh. He dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. As we look down at, um, we were looking earlier at verses um, 17 and 18, or we were looking at 18 before. But verse 17 says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So God was manifesting his glory. He was Moses. He gave Moses the law. And then he, um, there was that one time where Moses desired to see his glory. Remember that? And uh, God passed by and said, You can only see my back. 
Um, you can't see the fullness of my glory. You, you won't be able to survive that. But he was manifesting his glory to Moses, giving him the word, showing him a glimpse of his glory. And, uh, but the law was given through Moses. Grace, undeserved favor, and truth came through Jesus Christ. And um, we are so thankful that he has revealed himself to us by coming to this earth and being our Lord and Savior. Jesus, um, as we said earlier, he's going to make some claims about himself. Um, his works, his miracles bear witness to who he is. And there were many um, witnesses to his deity. We'll look at that a little bit later in our, our question time. So as we go along, we, we mentioned John the Baptist. John the Baptist, um, he's an interesting person here as we look at the rest of John chapter 1. Um, we see him coming in and um, looking to the Christ. And if we look here at verse uh, 19, and this is the testimony of John. Um, I'm sorry, um, we're going to look at verse 29, I'm sorry. John the Baptist was saying in verse 1, John chapter uh, 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then it says in verse 34, And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The first witness, he's saying, this Jesus, he is the Son of God. And you think about John the Baptist. He was um, described by Jesus one time as being the greatest of, of men born of women. And if you look here, he's, uh, John the Baptist says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. If he's the greatest of men born of women, and he's not worthy of that, where does that put all of us? You know, that, that's, that's very, very humbling. But he's the first witness. And then Jesus begins to um, call his disciples. And we see him um, calling Andrew. Uh, he's calling Philip. And then uh, Philip goes to uh, find Nathaniel. And I think Nathaniel's interesting. Nathaniel kind of represents the, the skeptic in all of us. Um, you know, Philip goes to him, and, and Nathaniel goes to uh, Philip. Um, this person, can, can anything good come from Galilee? Um, you know, many times we may, you know, maybe invite people to the car show or the cookie swap, and can anything good come out of Grace Bible Church? You know, skeptics, you know, that we, we encounter them all the time. But um, Nathaniel goes, and then Jesus says to him, Ah, a man in whom is no guile. I saw you before you came underneath that fig tree. And Nathaniel goes, Whoa, what? And he says, Surely you are the Son of God. We see this in verse 40. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. So we see first John the Baptist and now we see Nathaniel declaring, you are the son of God. Um, so he's, Jesus has come into this world. Why do people refuse the Lord Jesus? And I think we, as we look into um, John chapter 3, It says, he came into the world. Okay, here it is. John chapter 3, verse 19. Jesus came into the world. We have the witnesses. We have his miracles. Why do people still refuse him? And why did they refuse him back then? 
And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his, work, his works should be exposed. Um, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Whoever does what is true, what is true is to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, to acknowledge he is our only hope, and to live for him. Whoever does what is true, we can see that his works have been carried out in God. And then I was talking before about um, John. He's very blunt and straight to the point. Many times, like his master, who he learned from, um, we'll look at the, uh, the end of verse, um, chapter 3. At the end of um, chapter 3, we see verse 35 and 36. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. And then John goes on to say, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. I told you John was a straight talker. And he just tells it like it is. You have Jesus, you have eternal life. You have that joy and peace that only comes through him. You don't have the son, you have no hope, you have no life, you're dead in your trespasses, and the wrath of God abides upon you. Very short and straight to the point. Well, we have um, a number, there's a lot of uh, material in the first five chapters of uh, the Gospel of John. But we, um, we're going to start looking at our, um, our questions that we have for this week. And um, the, first, the first one, what does it mean to receive or believe in Jesus Christ according to John 1.12 and John 3.16? Is this just an intellectual response to the claims of Christ or is there more involved? Anyone have any thoughts or, or answers to that question this week? Is it enough just to say that I believe the facts about the gospel? I believe that there was a person, Jesus, and I believe that he died on the cross for sinners. Is that enough? Barbara, why not? Right, yep. He wants us to trust him. Absolutely. And it, Pastor Ty. Uh, that passage in James says that even demons know that God is one. They believe the Word of God speaks about God. That's not enough to save you. Right. Yeah. It, very, very true. Um, you know, and it goes on to say faith without good works is dead. It, it's not a real faith. And, you know, that there's, when we look to um, uh, faith and believing, there is the intellectual part about it. You have to you know, believe the facts um, that the word of God spells out, no doubt about that. Um, I think there's even an emotional component to it. Um, I think of the, the man who um, was at the steps of the temple and, and cried out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He was crying out, mourning for his sin. Um, there's an aspect of joy when we come to know Jesus Christ. Uh, emotions are definitely a part of it. But it comes down to, um, to trust. And it says here the volitional part of it, which uh, Pastor Ty was talking about, the, the action and the works. 
We're not saved by good works, but if we're truly believing and, and trusting in Jesus Christ alone, and we're, we have that newness of life, it's going to be exhibited by those good works that we do um, in his name. So, um, interesting thing, when I was looking at the scriptures here, um, John chapter 2, just to look at that for a second, when we were looking at belief, John chapter 2, verse 23, 24, and 25. Um, Jesus was doing many works, and they saw the signs that Jesus was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus is omniscient. He knows all. I, I like to say that in the eyes of God, the eyes of Jesus, there, there's two groups of people, those who know him and love him, who are saved, and those who are, do not know him and who are lost. Jesus knows this. He's omniscient. He knows all. With us, we're not. Um, I, I sometimes say we see people like in three groups. We know those people who are saved and who are serving the Lord and, and love him, and then we see on the other side those people who are rebellious and want nothing to do with God. We know they're lost. But sometimes we see people that say they have that belief in Christ, but we're not sure if their lives are really exhibiting that change. And sometimes we just need wisdom in praying for these people. So Jesus knows. He knows all men. We don't always know, and we need to, to be humble in, in praying for people um, that God would meet their deepest spiritual need. Okay, the, uh, the next question. What truth do both Matthew 121 and John 129 affirm about Jesus? Jeff. Yes, absolutely. Um, it says here in Matthew 121, you shall call his name Jesus, and he shall do what? Right, save his people from their sins, right. So we know that Jesus came into this world to give his life as a ransom and to uh, save his people from their sins. We spoke before about Jesus um, manifesting his glory. And we saw his first miracle, the turning of water into wine. Um, hopefully you had some opportunity to look uh, maybe at Psalm 19. According to Psalm 19, what are the two primary ways that God declares his glory? Anyone have a chance to look at that this week? Jeff? Yeah, the, the law of the Lord is perfect, right? So yeah, you're right. The first part is the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day, it pours forth speech. There's no language where they are not heard. Um, and I think in, in Romans chapter 1, I think it is, Therefore, O man, you are without excuse because of this. this is, that's the general revelation in the, the first um, six verses of Psalm 19. We look at the, uh, the heavens. We see his creation. We know his divine power and his divine wisdom. And therefore, man is without excuse. Someone was behind all this. There's a creator who is the master creator um, who designed this world. But then we see the specific revelation, like Jeff mentioned, that the word 
of the Lord is perfect, um, converting the soul. Um, the word of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. That's referred to as the specific revelation. And the only way you can come to really know God personally and seeking him is to know what his word says and believing his word and receiving Christ. That's the specific revelation. And that's why we share the gospel. We want people to know that specific revelation of God. As Gideons, we go out and we hand testaments out throughout the world so people can know the word and can come to Christ. We witness um, because we want people to develop that hunger for God and to read the word and come to know him through that specific revelation he has given us. That is needed. And many times people will refer to what they, um, I was ministering one time amongst a number of people and they were going to the recovery groups. And many times they would say to me, I would offer them a testament and they would say, well, yeah, I, 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 worship, uh, I worship the higher power. And I said, well, you know, afterwards we're going to have a Bible study. And I want you to have this testament. I want you to come to the Bible study because I want to introduce you to who that higher power is. His name is Jesus Christ. And he wants you to come to know him and to have a personal relationship with him. And uh, so that's the specific revelation that we give people. Come to know Christ. Come to know his word. He's not just a, uh, a power out there that has no personality and he's not a person. He's a person and um, you can come to know him. In verses 13 and 17 of John chapter 2, um, Jesus displays zeal for his father's house in cleansing the temple. How do you think we can exhibit a similar zeal for God in our worship and our service to him? Kind of an open-ended question. Maybe you have some time to think about that. But what are some things we can do in our church service and our service to him that demonstrate that zeal? You know, Jesus went to the temple and he went there and he saw that they were, um, you know, making it a house of trade instead of a house of, of prayer. And he took the whip of cords and he started to uh, cleanse the temple. Bonnie. going there to get what I can out of it, or are we offering true worship to God? Excellent. Barbara? And, and worshiping him in truth. And so our worship should be guided by the word of God, um, truth. Yep. What about worshiping God in spirit? You know, we know we need to worship God according to the revelation of his truth. Spirit, you must worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Sometimes we struggle with that one. Truth, we know. How do you, how do you worship the Lord in spirit? I, I was uh, thinking about that and you know, First Chronicles 16.29 says, Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness with reverence. You know, we come before him. He's an awe-inspiring God. And we want to offer acceptable um, worship to him. And we want to prepare our hearts spiritually 
before we come before him. I've had the, uh, the opportunity to go to a number of churches and sometimes churches, I've, I've been to churches recently where you know, they're selling coffee outside and people are sometimes bringing coffee into the worship service and being very casual. But I think, you know, when we enter the worship service, I think in the book of Ecclesiastes, it says, when you come before God, God is in heaven and you're on earth. Let your words be few. We come into the service and I know we all like to say hello and catch up with one another. But if we have time, it's good just to take a moment and just to quiet our hearts before God and reverence before him. Heather? Hard to believe. Yeah, absolutely. He's, he's given us spiritual gifts to serve him. And we ought to serve him with enthusiasm, with zeal, and make the most of those gifts he has given us. Absolutely. It says, um, you know, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. John? Shane? I was just going to say, I don't think the worship of God is going to be devoted strictly to the church. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. I think that we should be exhibiting that in our day to day walk. Yes, yep. In all aspects of our life. Okay, John chapter 3. Um, Jesus gives his famous instructions to Nicodemus that he must be born again. This was a challenging concept for Nicodemus to understand. Um, How would you describe to someone what it means to be born again? Someone may say, I've heard this term born again. It was was made kind of famous back in the 70s. Some of us are not old enough to remember Jimmy Carter, uh, president, when he declared he uh, is born again. Um, People may say, I've heard this term. What, What does that mean? How would you answer that person in your own words? Julia? Okay, living for him and for his glory. Yep. Yes. Brenda. Right, you're walking in newness of life. Excellent. Christina? Okay. Any any other ideas? Claire? Right. And as we're saying, that's something that's a work of God that God does in our hearts. 
and we'll know that we've been born again when we recognize our need and his provision for that need in Christ. Yeah. John? Yes. yes. And uh, Joanna, did you have your hand up? No. Joanne, did you did you have your hand? Uh, well, I'm somebody in the meeting who said what I was going to say, but I, I do think that once you're born again, that you do start thinking lightly and biblically, because the moment you're born again, you do lose your old self and you start to make up your new self as you learn the Bible and how to walk the walk with Christ. Right. Yeah, we have the mind of Christ. We have a new way of looking at things. Okay, good. Well, excellent. Okay, in um, John 3.16, you know, that's been described as the most well-known verse in the Bible for God so loved the world. Um, he gave his only begotten son, believing in him. We have eternal life. Who is the initiator of salvation according to this verse? God. Yeah, God is the one who initiates. And uh, what can we learn about God from this you know, very familiar verse? Christina? Grace. Grace, yep. And Barbara? He that he loves us. Right. God is love. Um, he's the personification of love. In Romans, we talked about God wanting to uh, demonstrate his love. We said before, why did God allow darkness and sin into the world? It allows him to manifest his love in a way that he never, ever could before. It says in Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then he goes on to say that there's no greater love than that a person should give their life for their friends. And Jesus goes beyond that by giving his life for his enemies. What a great demonstration of love that God has shown us in his son. Christina? Was just, it must have been just a marvel to them to see that. Well, we go to uh, John chapter 4, verse 21. Jesus has the encounter with a woman at the well. And he, he says to her, there's coming a day in which um, worshiping God will not be restricted to a specific location. What makes this possible? Right, right. We, we have access to God, and uh, through Christ, we have access to God, through one spirit, to the Father. And I think of, um, you know, the, the tearing of the temple. Remember when Jesus was crucified, the temple was torn from top to bottom, and it gave us access, um, you know, to, to God and to be able to worship him in spirit and in truth. Um, any other thoughts on that? You know, I, I love that chapter four, 
where Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well. Did, do you recall when he was speaking to her? What was unusual about that encounter? What, what were people saying about that encounter that Jesus had? Do you Claire? Talking to a woman. And a Samaritan, yeah, a woman, yeah, two things. Um, you know, this, his disciples came back and were just, wow, what are you doing? <laughs> and, but the, the woman says, um, you know, we, we worship who we know. And, and, and Jesus said to them, you're worshiping who you don't know. You know, salvation is of the Jews. And he points out to her her need for the living water that is Christ. He points out to her her sin. He points out that she's living with a man that's not her husband. And he reveals to her that he is um, the Son of God, the Messiah. Okay, um, in verse 18 of chapter 5, what relationship does Jesus claim to have with God? I think we, we've gone over that. Right, and what, is, what does that infer when he says God is my Father? Right, that he's equal with God. And uh, I don't think the Pharisees uh, took too kindly to that, did they? Um, why was this so offensive to them? Yeah, they, they thought it was a blasphemy. How, how can a man who walks among us declare that he is God? Um, legitimate question, but Jesus proved he was indeed the Son of God. And we're looking at that in the Gospel of John here. Um, and finally, um, according to, in, verse, in chapter 5, according to verses 33, 36, 37, and 39, who or what bears witness to the identity of Jesus? We said there were many witnesses, and we start looking at some of these witnesses. Um, what was the first one that we see here in uh, verse 33? Yep, John the Baptist was the first one. We saw that in... Um, John chapter 1, and we see that again here in uh, verse 33. And then we go to um, verse 36 in chapter 5. What else bears witness to who Jesus is based on verse 36? His works. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. We're looking for more witnesses here. Verse 37. Yes, the father. Remember the time when Jesus was baptized. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Um, verse 39. Um, what else is bearing witness to who Jesus is? The scriptures. Yeah, the scriptures. Um, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. It's, um, when you read the word of God, when you read the prophets, uh, the Psalms, and even Moses, because he goes here at the end of um, chapter 5, he says here, um, verse 45, Do you think that I will accuse you to the Father? There is one who accuses you, Moses, of whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my works? And we recall one time Moses said, one, time, one day God is going to raise up a prophet among you, like unto myself. 
listened to him. And he was uh, bearing witness to that day when Jesus Christ would come. Um, as we continue to look through the Gospel of John, I want you to keep in mind as you're reading um, miracles. You know, we talked about the works bearing witness to who Jesus is. You know, when we're witnessing the people, we can talk about his, his works. And there are seven primary miracles in the Gospel of John. Be looking for that as we go through the Gospel of John. There's also, there's many witnesses, but there's, I'd say, about seven different groups of types of witnesses. Be looking for those as we go through the Gospel of John. And then there's seven statements that Jesus makes about himself. And we'll go through these later on, that I am, and you know, we'll be looking at those seven statements there. So um, let's uh, close in a word of prayer and prepare our heart for worship. Father, we thank you for our study here this morning. We thank you that Jesus is the truth, the life, and the way. And Father, you have instructed us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Father, we pray now that as we come before you in worship, we would offer to you worship that is well-pleasing in your sight. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.